Hello and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer, a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we're honored to have one of our veterans of the show back on with us, uh, Dr. Stephen Threckle, to talk about more outpatient therapy and, and just overall um, you know, updates to therapy for COVID-19. Stephen, welcome back to the program. Thanks, guys. Good to be with you. So we wanted to start just kind of with with where we are with the pandemic right now. I know in in our areas, cases are, are starting to go down a little bit. Um, we you know reached our all time high maybe two weeks ago now um, on the inpatient side, uh, but still have a long, long ways to go uh, before we're back to where we were, you know, in, in late fall. Um, what are you seeing right now on the ground uh, at the hospitals? Is it easing up anymore or is it still um, pretty touch and go? Yeah, I think, um, you know, some of the folks in Mississippi are still having a little bit more in the way of cases and hospitalization numbers. They're unfortunately lagging a little bit behind that. Um, up uh, a little bit north in Memphis, certainly the numbers are coming down pretty nicely from a peak of 186 people at Baptist Memphis, just as an example, down to about 130 today, uh, which is a nice drop. The problem is that there's still so many people in the ICUs because obviously the people that get admitted to the ICU just kind of come to stay uh, and they're sick for a long time. And, and you see that three curve thing that we're now used to, the cases in the community followed by uh, uh, followed by hospitalizations, followed then unfortunately by deaths. And so to, to the average person caring for folks in the ICU, they just have a full ICU pool of really sick people. And it's going to be a while before that goes down. And unfortunately, one of the ways it's going to go down is that some of those folks are going to die after, you know, heroic measures for quite some time. And that's kind of the way it played out in different in the uh, previous uh, waves. And that's unfortunately the way it's going to probably pan out now. Well, I know we wanted to do this update um, to focus on the outpatient management of COVID-19. You know, for a while, you know, we really only had the monoclonal antibodies. But over the past couple of months, we've We've had some new therapies come out, and it doesn't seem, based on our numbers, that we're really prescribing them maybe as much as they're available. Um, but wanted to start just with an overview of, of what is out there and then kind of go through what is first line, second line, third line, and what to look out for in these drugs. Can you um, just talk briefly about the available therapies on the outpatient side, and then we'll kind of dive into each one? Yeah, I mean, uh, and I know that Krista, our colleague in pharmacy, gave a very nice kind of introduction to this not long ago. And so, but things continue to move pretty quickly on this front. I think the most disheartening thing, of course, has been the uh, vanishing monoclonal antibody effectiveness among several agents that we had. It's kind of particularly painful for us because Baptist really was a leader nationally in uh, in those drugs. We were the first to use it nationally, about 30 feet from where I'm sitting on November the 16th, I think it was, uh, 2020. Um, and we gave in the thousands of those doses. You're talking about a drug that's at the time, you know, 70, 80 percent effective at preventing hospitalizations and death in the aggregate. So that's a lot of lives saved uh, in that. And so it's kind of disheartening that the Omicron variant comes along and really evaporates the efficacy for most of those drugs. Um, and that's a big problem. It's it's in a way kind of ominous. Thankfully, it wasn't accompanied by, by severe uh, virulence, that virus, but it did. Uh, resistance is not necessarily the way you want to go, um, but unfortunately not surprising with coronaviruses. Now, we did have that one drug, of course, uh, sotrovimab, that was not sort of the, the big brother of those agents. Uh, it was the last to be approved, I think, in May or so, and didn't get a lot of use. Unfortunately, with that not great use, they didn't produce a lot of it. And unfortunately, now it's the only one left. 
Um, and so that's the monoclonal antibody uh, that, that, that is remaining to us. We have the two oral agents uh, that have now come on the scene, both molnupiravir, which is kind of the first to break through into the press, uh, and Paxlovid uh, from Pfizer. And they have a pretty different uh, sort of array of efficacies. Uh, molnupiravir is, is on the order of 30% effective, uh, whereas Paxlovid closer to uh, you know, 90%, 89% or so effective. Um, in some decent trials. Now, none of these things have ever done, they've never had comparative trials done, but the, the trials were pretty good, and so people kind of take them at face value. And then finally, remdesivir, the drug that we is now fully approved, actually, by the FDA for inpatient use, but now it had also very nice numbers for people who weren't yet hospitalized, weren't yet hospitalized, weren't yet on oxygen, that sort of thing, in a three-day dose. So we have those four things, and the order is actually quite nicely uh, handled, I think, in the latest NIH guidelines. They say you want to use Paxlovid first because it has probably the best efficacy, most convenient, that sort of thing. Then Sotrovimab uh, as an outpatient monoclonal is second. Then the remdesivir. And then finally, molnupiravir, obviously because it has uh, by a significant margin the least efficacy. But it is so complicated before we talk about them individually because a lot of people won't qualify for one or the other, either because of kidney function or because of other medications they're on that they don't qualify. So there are times when we use the least effective one, uh, molnupiravir, which you only use if you can't use the others. But those times do occur, and certainly we've had that happen on a couple of occasions. And let's just talk a little bit more about that when you don't use these other other agents. So do you want to start with Paxlovid? Yeah, sure. Paxlovid is, uh, you know, it's a very impressive drug. Um, it's a, just a twice a day for five days combination tablet uh, or two tablets, actually, uh, that uses a new novel um, uh, drug that affects the protease uh, enzyme uh, in uh, in this virus. It prevents that virus from cleaving a very large protein into two very necessary component parts. And without that happening, those parts can't then uh, run around doing their job. So it's quite effective in doing that. And it's coupled with an agent called ritonavir, which we have used since I think about 1996, if I remember correctly, when that came out for HIV. So we have a lot of experience with that drug, uh, which is a good thing. But Unfortunately, uh, the experience is that it interacts with a lot of medications. In part, it serves as a booster for this other protease inhibitor. That's what we use it for in HIV medication compounds, and that's what it uh, works here. But the kicker is it really uh, does a number on a lot of other medicines out there, some common agents. The ones you have to watch out for are the ones with the you know, so-called narrow therapeutic windows. Um, and some of those agents can be very toxic, obviously, if they get outside of that window. The ones that you most commonly think about uh, would be things like uh, antiarrhythmics, uh, uh, anticoagulation agents, uh, things like immunosuppressive medications in transplant patients, seizure medicines are very common, uh, chemotherapy agents, and medicines that affect kind of the neuropsych, like sedatives, uh, those kind of things. So they both are likely to have that interaction with ritonavir, and they also have the biggest consequences of those uh, interactions when they occur. So uh, also with, uh, you know, with uh, Paxlovid, uh, you don't want to give that with people with significant renal dysfunction. So, um, but it's important, I think, you know, the University of Liverpool, for example, has a nice website, maybe we can include that, um, where you really can help uh, calculate some of those drug interactions. It's not that you can't use these drugs with some of those interacting agents. You just have to use decent clinical judgment. Um, there are times 
you, know, you can adjust those other medications. You can hold them. It's only a five-day course. So in that sense, we can get away with a lot of that. But what you don't want to do is adjust the Paxlovid dose because sometimes people ask about that. Uh, we can't do that, really. Uh, sometimes you can use an alternative drug from what, you, uh, what you've used before uh, briefly. But there are some that you just can't do, like uh, you know, amiodarone, for example, is one of those common drugs that just causes nightmare uh, interactions. And that's one it's really hard to get it done with Paxlovid. And again, some people just won't, uh, you, you can't use the drug because of that occasionally. And, and speaking of Paxlovid, which patient populations qualify for its use? Yeah, so, so it's somebody, all of these trials were done uh, in higher risk people. So the main trial that showed that big efficacy was people were people that were unvaccinated at high risk because of either underlying impaired immunity, uh, maybe they couldn't be vaccinated, uh, those sorts of issues. And the best results were within three days of the symptom onset. Now, it's okay to use it with the emergency use authorization out to five days because it had good effect even out to there. But the earlier, the better. And so the problem is that you roll that up with the availability of that drug, which is not great at all right now, along with the availability of tests because you've got to have a test positive before you qualify for this drug. So there are a couple of hurdles that you have to jump over to get to it. And that has certainly proved to be a difficult uh, problem in some situations. Yeah, it does sound like it would, it would be challenging, but not impossible. So you got somebody that, that's a um, high risk individual um, that is likely to be on some of these medications, I guess, that would um, you know interact with Paxlovid or Ritonavir. And then you also, it's only available right now, I think in our areas at, at certain Walmarts or that's where you can find it. Yep. Um, three Walmart pharmacies, uh, primarily in the Memphis area, for example. Um, and, um, you know, they, they they run out very quickly. Uh, and there is the site I know that we talked about earlier uh, that maybe we can provide as well that actually shows where all of the government uh, supported uh, medications and agents go. They have the monoclonal antibody on there. They have Paxlovid um, and they have Molnupiravir. They show where the shipment went. They show how much they got, when they got it. And you can search that by zip code so it can be very, very helpful. But literally, people are on Facebook saying the new uh, the new Paxlovid shipment is in at Walmart on Elvis Presley and people run out and get it. So oh, it, wow. it is a problem. But you raise that that important point is that there, there are several steps. You have to suspect the illness. You have to get a test that's positive. You may have to contact your primary provider to get the prescription who then has to evaluate your medications. If that's on a Saturday night, that, that can be hard to get accomplished. So all the time, the clock is ticking on the efficacy uh, situation. And so you really, uh, the efficiency really counts in using this drug. And what's your experience been with it so far? Um, You've been able to get it for a number of patients? They tolerate it well? Um, yes and no. There, there are times when we've had none available. I've had some people drive to another city in another state to get it, which I applauded. I said, look, if I had a high-risk dad with the problems here, I would drive to you know Jackson or to Little Rock and go get it if need be, because its, it's effect is quite outstanding. And of course, my anecdotal uh, experience is my anecdotal experience. But, you know, you have a lot of people say I was better within six hours. And you say, well, you know, OK, <laughs> the drug. Um, but uh, but certainly the numbers have been impressive. And I, I've seen nothing different from that. And, you know, if you look at this drug, I, I mean, I've, I've said a lot of times in the last few weeks, you give me adequate vaccines, adequate testing and Paxlovid alone. And all of a sudden you're taking a 90 percent drop in hospitalizations and deaths. All of a sudden the 400,000 deaths per year average we've seen over the last two years drops to 40,000. And that's assuming that we've gotten no better along the way on average. Uh, you're talking about an influenza year then. 
And, you know, we don't get too worked up about influenza, rightly or wrongly. We can debate that. But uh, but you really are looking at an influenza sort of situation, unlike what people have claimed from the beginning, the naysayers of the pandemic. It's far worse than that. But with this drug used properly all by itself, uh, you can get it down to that sort of situation. So it's a big deal to get the availability of this medicine. So when you speak of the numbers that are impressive, is that a decrease in hospitalization? Is that a decrease in the symptoms, decrease in the time frame of symptoms? Well, the study really spoke primarily in the endpoint to the aggregate endpoint of hospitalization and death. And so you give me a 90 percent decrease in hospitalizations and death. And I'm not too worried about how they feel for the next couple of days. That's good enough for That's me. Right. Although right. a lot of people do certainly say that they feel better faster, which which I guess really stands to reason in some ways. Um, but the main endpoint was was of serious disease. And of course, that's what really tumbles the societal difficulties, hospitalization, stressing the system, that sort of thing. All right. So you got a patient um, that has COVID, they're high risk, and you can't find Pexlovid or they can't tolerate Pexlovid. What do you go to next? Yeah, if you go down the list, then you would next go uh, to citrovimab, the monoclonal antibody. Now, that's, uh, you know, you have to be in an infusion setting to get that. So that's not necessarily easy to get. Also has been difficult to uh, to get. We've seen it in spotty numbers. Again, it was not the highest production agent of the monoclonals, but it's the only one left on the block. So that also can be a little bit difficult uh, to get for people. Uh, it's less than 10 days of duration, though, so you get a longer hourglass to play with on that. Um, you can. Uh, one of the reasons would be you expired the EUA duration of Paxlovid, which is five days. And so if you got somebody seven days of symptoms, really high risk, that becomes attractive, not just because it works, but because it's the next one on the list that you can qualify for. So if you can find that, that's a very good, uh, a very good alternative. It also is in the you know 70 to 80 plus range of efficacy at that uh, all important hospitalization slash death uh, combined outcome as a primary endpoint. And don't necessarily have to worry about the medication interactions with citrovimab or are there any side effects or any other contraindications that you would worry about with it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much like what we saw with the other monoclonal antibodies. Um, it's very easy to use. I mean, there, there essentially are no major contraindications. I mean, uh, no matter what they're on, no matter what their underlying illness, the worse, the better. I mean, the more the more their underlying problems, the more risk they are and the more benefit they have to potentially gain from that infusion. And so we saw that in the in the first part. One of the reasons we were able to really ramp up the use of the other monoclonal antibodies is that somebody would call and say, I've got this guy with terrible heart and lung troubles and diabetes and on these medications and they have COVID. And, and you could you could just say, okay, send them over. Um, yeah. And it was it was almost that easy. I don't mean to oversimplify, but but that was nearly the truth. And so that is an advantage of, of this drug when you can find it. Uh, it's it's fairly safe to give to people with a lot of underlying problems. And as you say, medications that might disqualify other agents. All right. So you were unable to get this patient Paxlovid. You're unable to get them citrovimab. Where are you going next? I feel like you're squeezing me around the neck here. Um, <laughs> Well, theoretically, next on the list, although the uh, the NIH would uh, would admit that this is maybe even harder to get to, would be remdesivir, uh, the old friend, first agent that really came out there. I can remember trying to get it on a trial for a colleague who was quite sick with COVID way back in the beginning. Problem was, you only had a 50-50 chance. It was a trial. You couldn't get the drug otherwise. So you'd have to send them to somewhere else uh, and to uh, you know try to get that medication. So it is now fully FDA approved. We normally think of it as a five-day uh, in-house medication for somebody. 
Um, it also has that time limitation deal that essentially all antivirals are likely to have. Antivirals just don't work so well if you wait too long because the viral effect moves into an immune effect, doesn't show any, any benefit after that. So it's a seven-day kind of limit on remdesivir. And it's something uh, that would be a three-day rather than a five-day uh, infusion. Once again, you have to go to um, you have to go to an infusion center to get it with all that that entails. And certainly, uh, we have a bunch of them in the Baptist system, which is very nice. Uh, but a lot of even large academic centers struggled mightily to get to, to get things like the monoclonals and remdesivir given in the first place, and still have some difficulties with it. So um, it's pretty well tolerated. It's not used if you have significant kidney or liver function problems. Uh, in that sense. So um, it, again, like the uh, sotrovimab, becomes a lot of times a logistics problem. Although it's a wider availability drug, um, getting that done in an outpatient infusion center can be, can be on the difficult side. And, okay. And then last, you can't get any of those top three. You're going to go to molnupiravir, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, it's an interesting drug. It, it is a different mechanism, uh, and it has the least efficacy. If you look at the NIH guidelines, for example, they say, okay, this is only to be used if you can't get the others or they don't qualify. But this happens. I mean, we, we've had a person um, that uh, was elderly, had impaired uh, kidney function, because that's important. Molnupiravir does not uh, get changed dose in kidney and liver dysfunction. So you can give it in those folks um, and was a very high risk person uh, and there was no citrovimab uh, available. Um, and so we were able to get him um, the molnupiravir and, you know, it's only 30% 30 30 effective, but you give me a 30% discount on a car and I'll take it if I needed one. And so you would certainly take a 30% dip in your potential hospitalization and death if that's the best you had, even though we do have better. So, um, and again, there are no direct trials, but among the four of them, um, but it's a drug that operates by a different mechanism. What it does is it, uh, it makes the sort of RNA dependent RNA polymerase uh, in these viruses go crazy and it makes them throw in a bunch of wrong nucleotides and it causes mutagenesis to where the virus uh, kills itself if we want to call viruses alive. It, they generally make, make many mutations so that it's lethal uh, and that virus doesn't come up with copies that are able to go on continuing replicating uh, itself or themselves. So it's um, the problem with that is that it does cause some concern about mutagenesis, let's say, in pregnant women. Um, there were some animal studies, one of which was kind of inconclusive. The other said it was probably perfectly fine. So it's not recommended uh, in pregnancy routinely in this situation. Now, that is not a hard and fast, uh, you know, rule. If it's somebody that's a tremendously high risk person, uh, you know, you could still use it in some situations if you really feel like the relative risk uh, is that high because there are no data that say that it really is bad or, or harmful, um, but is, there's just that potential really. So we certainly don't reach for that uh, early on uh, unless it's an extreme sort of situation, though you wouldn't say that it's impossible that it might be useful in that situation. And what isn't about the there, other therapies? Go ahead. I'm sorry, the other therapies that we discussed in pregnancy. 
Yeah, so um, th thankfully the monoclonal antibody went uh, pretty safe. Uh, remdesivir uh, also we've used in ICU settings with pregnant uh, folks in the hospital before. And again, it comes down to sort of a relative risk thing. Uh, even uh, you know with Paxlovid, there's no, uh, there is a caution on that, but again, there's no real mechanism by which that should cause a problem. So it's the kind of thing I think with any of the newer therapies, a, a pregnant individual ought to check with their obstetrician about that, and they can then call uh, either critical care, infectious disease, somebody that might have some expertise in that. Uh, but it's going to vary a lot more with the individual patient and someone who's pregnant because uh, you want to pick the right one with the least risk. But again, as, as and part of the point here is that they're not going to always be available. Uh, they may have other disqualifying factors. And so it gets to be pretty complicated when you uh, when you put it in the uh, in the category of pregnancy. And then back to the molnupiravir, you know, I've heard that some are concerned with the mutagenesis that it might cause worsening variants coming out of it. Is there any any strength to that argument? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think um, thankfully it's not a random uh, unstructured, uh, slow variation generation. This thing uh, really drives the car pretty far off the road uh, you know, when you throw it in there. So the likelihood that it's going to generate a variant that is still replication competent and can still spread to people, um, but just have enough mutations to be more virulent and more resistant to, uh, uh, let's say, citrovimab, for example, uh, that's not likely. And I think the NIH has recognized it's unlikely, but they are, in fact, making the company keep a database uh, of some of the variants and, and the, uh, the data on sequences so that we can try to keep track of that. But I, I don't think anybody feels like that's terribly likely, very honestly. This is a random sort of out of control mutagenesis that's unlikely to land uh, with a, something that's going to that's gonna look good from the viral standpoint. And then lastly, I think uh, as far as outpatient therapy goes, uh, talk about Ebishield, uh, when you would use it, have you used it, uh, is it also hard to get? Yeah, it, it likewise. Unfortunately, you know, we have these terrific new things that we can use, but they are available in very spotty fashion, and it varies from state to state. Uh, Tennessee has not been the easiest to get, unfortunately, um, and so, but it is available in some of the surrounding states, maybe a little better. It's an intramuscular injection, and it's sort of a neat concept because it is truly a prophylactic agent. So if you have someone, and this is part of the emergency use authorization, they need to be at high risk. They need to have some of those underlying illnesses, solid organ transplant, bone marrow transplant, chronic steroids or other immunosuppressive agents, um, inherited um, errors of immunity to George's syndrome and things like that. So there's a long list, and that list is available with the NIH uh, uh, sort of page that they have on it. But they also need to be high risk in the same way that these other agents do. And if they qualify for that, then this can be an injection that can protect them for up to six months. Um, so that can be a very important thing because you can't really fully avoid being exposed to this virus, particularly the more effective, contagious and resistant to even good immunity, um, you're not going to avoid the disease very easily these days, as we're seeing, unfortunately, with, uh, you know, with the current variant and that surge. So it's a very neat opportunity, and we've seen several people that we've gotten it for, for example, who were solid organ transplant uh, uh, recipients, and they were able to take this. Now, the important thing is that this is not a some sort of uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. You don't then, then run around and go to uh, wild, large parties uh, once you take your Evershield, and that's only half a joke. We've seen that. People sort of have this artificial uh, feeling of, uh, you know, of safety um, you know, um, if they, once they take that drug. It's a great thing to add to it, but you still need to use common sense and avoid the infection uh, if you can, because nothing is perfect, that included.
All right. So we one other thing about Evershell too, uh, in terms of the adverse effects of it, um, it, it, it's shown to be pretty safe. I mean, less than one percent of people have had uh, significant uh, significant reactions. And the weird thing about that was that it was kind of matched by the placebo. Um, in the first trial, there were 35% adverse reactions uh, if you look at the mild to moderate ones, but there were 34% of the placebo arm that had them too. So it's kind of a population of folks that are going to have a high likelihood of side effects from things seemingly, uh, but the actual serious ones are very low, and it turns out to be a to be a very uh, safe uh, drug. And but like the other monoclonal antibodies that we've seen in the past, you do watch those folks at an infusion center for an hour or so after the infusion just to make sure that there's no kind of problem with that that you need to attend to. So we, I think we covered the majority of outpatient therapies, unless you know something else that's out there coming. Um, what about on the inpatient side? Any updates to any guidance in the last couple of months? Well, you know, I guess the biggest one has been the anticoagulation issue that that has kind of been been sort of a, a hot topic first. But it's interesting; it hasn't really penetrated every. I've talked to people around the country, and some people kind of haven't really incorporated that aggressively because the anticoagulation argument has been a a very loud one uh, from the very beginning of this. Simply because when we saw folks early on in this illness, people were coming in with unexplained strokes and heart attacks at, at very high levels, and it was a very kind of difficult thing to watch. We didn't really know what to do. Uh, it took a long time for there to be any meaningful guidance, and people would just do what they suspected might be the right thing. We were all over the place with what we people were doing with anticoagulation, and so now it looks like at least we have enough trials where the NIH has come out with some, you know, I think some key guidance, if not, uh, if not sort of an obvious and clear-cut guideline in every patient. But the gist of it is, is that if you're a floor patient, non-ICU patient, requiring low flow oxygen, nasal prong oxygen, for example, if you're not pregnant, and if you don't have any of the high risk for bleeding issues, and if you have a positive D-dimer of any elevation, so, and it's a Tuesday, no, I'm kidding, but um, the, uh, but if you have all those things, and they really, it, that sounds more complicated than it is. You don't want to give anticoagulation to somebody with a big-time bleeding risk, obviously, somebody who has really low platelets or just had a bleed or, or something like that, um, uh, bleeding disorders, those people have to be careful about that. Pregnancy, obviously, is its own, sec own problematic situation because a lot of those people weren't included in the trials of this, so it's harder to know what to say about that. But, but in general, some reasonable candidate who's getting nasal prong oxygen, they do actually recommend uh, you know, full-dose uh, heparinization with, uh, with Lovenox or, or something like it uh, because that really improves, uh, improves survival. It knocks down strokes and other kind of, of venous side, certainly uh, uh, thrombotic uh, issues. And so that really was, uh, was their uh, original recommendation. For the people who were in the ICU, it turns out that it wasn't uh, quite as aggressive. They found out that full heparinization did not improve survival, but it did cause an increase in bleeding problems. So we cut it down to just prophylactic dose uh, heparinization or anticoagulation and those sorts of things. Of course, unless they already have a venous thromboembolus kind of problem or they have a D known DVT, that would change that equation. But in the absence of that, you'd be a little more conservative uh, and give sort of prophylactic dose in those situations. And, you know, it, it's not perfect. Uh, you're going to have some variation, but at least it's some guidance that really, I think, speaks to one of the real uh, one of the real scary things that we have seen uh, from the beginning of the pandemic.
Yeah, no, I think that that's a really important update, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, but otherwise, no changes to the inpatient um, regimen that that we've been doing. Still full speed ahead with remdesivir, um, dexamethasone, tocilizumab, et cetera. Yeah, and baricitinib. And so um, baricitinib may be better in some situations. Obviously, um, uh, in renal dysfunction, you push more toward the tocilizumab. So there are fine points of that that we may be uh, that we may be gaining along the way, but for the most part, it is uh, you know it, it's what it has been. Remdesivir uh, as an inpatient probably is not quite as exciting with later numbers as it was in the beginning, and that's the other one where if they've been symptomatic for more than seven days, uh, we don't usually give uh, remdesivir because once again these antiviral agents unlike steroids, baricitinib, tocilizumab, those things are knocking out the immune mechanism of later damage that get us to the ICU. The antiviral medicines like remdesivir have kind of a limited time frame, uh, and that's seven days. And so if somebody, it's pretty common for somebody to have been symptomatic for seven days by the time they're hospitalized in the first place. We were kind of given it a little more uh, openly uh, in the beginning, but now we really see that it doesn't do much in those situations. So a lot of folks that come into the hospital now, uh, by the time they get there and are sick, they really no longer qualify for the remdesivir. And it's, it's you know, people, um, you know, people sort of, it's funny, uh, patients and families can be sort of distressed by that. So they want the remdesivir anyway. And I always tell them, I say, look, if you have a fever blister, you don't take a cycle of ear on day five once it's crusting. It just doesn't do anything anymore. And it's very similar with all antivirals like that. So it's really, there's not a lot of benefit there. But for the most part, it's mostly the same. We try to dampen the immune system's uh, sort of maladaptive response at damaging our lungs and other places once it gets to that point with the disease. Let me ask you one other question about the inpatient management. I see a good number of people, I think, checking procalcitonin, and if it's high, treating concomitantly with antibiotics. Um, is that something that, that you're recommending as well? Well, it's, it has obviously proven to be one of the, uh, you know, one of the difficult things. Uh, secondary bacterial infections do turn out to be uncommon. So um, procalcitonin, you know, it's funny, from the very beginning of its onset has been somewhat controversial. It used as a standalone number, um, it's always hard to make much out of procalcitonin. Um, if I have a high uh, suspicion of secondary bacterial infection, that's one more log on the fire to make me give antibacterials to be sure. Uh, if I'm pretty sure I see nothing, uh, it has to be pretty elevated for me to really go, go it alone with that value. Um, but yeah, I think, I think those things are uncommon. It does speak to one other just parenthetic outpatient issue. Uh, I was talking to somebody yesterday who apparently sees a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of outpatient uh, cases of COVID. They don't always know they're COVID until they get to their office, but uh, then they turn out to be COVID. And, and I say, what do you do for them? They say, well, I give, uh, you know, our office gives, uh, you know, a Z pack and a Medrol dose pack uh, and, you know, vitamin C and vitamin D. And, and, and you know, I, I sort of say, well, wait, wait a minute. Um, you know, the, the Z-Pack, except in those unusual circumstances like what we're talking about, uh, is probably not something that is helpful at all. And you're just basically stacking potential side effects. But I think the one thing to, to throw out there is sort of a general point, too. Uh, and, and it's just it's an error that's made way too often. And I think Merritt's just mentioning uh, as, as, a, as a final point is do not use steroids unless they are already requiring uh, oxygen and are sick enough to be at the hospital because it's clearly delineated in the NIH guidelines and for others that it doesn't help and it might even be harmful while you're still in that viral stage to give the virus a replication advantage by dampening you. You want the immune system to be mean-spirited up front. 
And then if it does that, it's less likely to need to go crazy and be maladaptive later on because of really high viral loads. And you might be causing such a thing if you give steroids up front. So uh, it's, it, it happens all the time in outpatient management. It's something that really people need to pay attention to that point, I think. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and, uh, and talking us through these finer points. I know I learned a lot. Is there any other words of advice that you'd give to the medical staff? Hopefully we're, we're on the tail end of this pandemic, but I'm you know, it may not be done with us quite yet. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's there was a great essay uh, by a, a historian uh, at, at uh, Tulane who wrote the book, The Great Influenza. And he pointed out some uh, parallels to the 1918 pandemic, that there was a, a third less virulent wave that hit in 1919 that made everybody relax and say, you know, we're done with this. We've had enough. We don't care anymore. And then came another wave in 1920, a fourth wave that killed probably more people in some of the Midwestern United States than the really virulent second wave did. So we don't have a lot of control over what's going on, uh, uh, despite the fact that we seem to tell ourselves that we do. But I think the main thing uh, in the therapy of outpatients as we talk about all these complicated agencies, simply use common sense. Some things you just can't use, so don't. Uh, move on to something that does work, that they can that they can uh, really tolerate, and you know, uh, get help. Call somebody if you need to. There are plenty of folks out there uh, that can help answer questions. But we want to do the things, obviously, that didn't harm somebody, um, and yet that is that is reasonable. Thankfully, most people do great with this infection, and you hear it now with uh, you know the, one reason not to relax. People say, you know what, I don't care anymore. That this uh, this new variant Omicron is nothing but a cold or the flu. Well, guess what? It was always only a cold or the flu for most people who get it. That's always been the case from the very beginning. Yet here we are pushing a million dead in the United States. So it's very helpful for some people out there, and we don't know who they are sometimes, to be a little careful and use common sense ways not to get infected and to do the right thing once you do. Well, thanks again. Thank you again, everybody, for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.